Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The best way for you to not be charged a carbon tax is if you vote liberals in. That's what a cabinet minister said, rural cabinet minister, for the Trudeau government. If you just if you want to have the same deal as Atlantic Canada has, just vote in more liberals. Come on, Saskatchewan and Alberta, don't you get it? It's a quid pro quo. You vote for us, we give you something back. I think I'm taking Danielle Smith back to the days of being a talk show host. The Premier of Alberta joins us on the Roy Green Show. Premier, how are you? Hey, Roy. Nice to talk to you again. That's yeah, good to talk to you. Let's. Uh, you 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 tell me where you uh, where you want to go with this. I, I'm just going to throw this at you. First of all, you're not fighting against the carbon tax alone. Now, you've always had Premier Mo and Saskatchewan with you, but now you have other premiers on side. What's the message to Mr. Trudeau going to be at the Council of the Federation, based on everything that's happened over the last ten days? Well, I wish that the the Prime Minister would take part in our Council of the Federation. We often ask him if he would take part the way his ministers take part with their counterparts, but he it's very hard to get him to the table. We've been asking for him to come together, talk about infrastructure. We know that there's some pretty key things that we all have to work on, and I can see why he he, he doesn't want to, being that we're now seeing the, the Prime Minister pick favorites, decide that with the carbon tax, some people will pay it, others won't, and it seems to be arbitrary, or at least based on his electoral fortunes in Atlantic Canada compared to the rest of the country. And that's not the way tax policy is supposed to work. It's not the reason the Supreme Court gave the federal government the right to be able to impose a tax so that they could apply it this way. And that's why we are asking for tax fairness. And I hope he, I hope he delivers on that. And, and you have quite a number of premiers on side who are, who are calling for exactly that. It's not you and Mr. Moe alone on this. Well, the premiers, I think we have so much common causes. And what I really enjoy about the Council of the Federation is that we, we put aside the, the partisan hat and we just sort of are there to defend our, our, our provinces. And I think every single provincial leader has been frustrated at the imperious way that the federal government acts. And I, I think that's what you're seeing, that now, especially with the Supreme Court decision that came down that said the Constitution matters and you've got to follow it, I think you're now seeing that, that other premiers are going to, to be a lot more vocal about that. Uh, let me talk about, so ask you about something that, I, that uh, you and uh, Albertans are very closely engaged on, and that is the Canada Pension Plan and Alberta separating itself from the, uh, from the Canada Pension Plan. So please speak to us about that. And we now, uh, of course, have the uh, remarks from Christopher Freeland, the federal finance minister, that Alberta would need to negotiate international agreements if you quit the Canada Pension Plan. 
Well, one of the things I would say I was happy about on from the finance minister's meetings is she agreed that the chief actuary would work with us to identify what that asset transfer number would be. That's what we've heard from the people of Alberta, is that they, they're not prepared to go to a, a referendum vote on that until they know what exactly the asset transfer would be, what it would mean for contributions, and what it would mean for, for benefits. But when it comes to the, the nitty-gritty of negotiating portability, there, there are plenty of pension plans that have managed to work that out already. Quebec has um, any private sector plan has managed to work out portability. So we feel like those are, are very technical issues that, that are not a barrier. The big issue is is what the asset transfer is going to be. And, and we await that number and we're glad that the, the, that the finance minister is going to work with us on that. This is a very serious issue. It is a serious issue. I mean, one of the things that uh, people should look at in the report that we commissioned is there's an appendix that goes all the way back to 1966, and it shows how many pre- how much dollars in premiums Albertans paid, how much are seniors received in benefits, and year after year after year, the difference is billions of dollars. In in one year, we were putting in eight and a half billion dollars, and our seniors were getting around four and a half billion. That, that's the frustration that Alberta has: is that these programs are set up. So that even as a tiny province, we're only four and a half million people, even as a small province, we're overpaying. We're, we're paying uh, more than we otherwise would and subsidizing the rest of the country. And quite frankly, we, we, we don't get much appreciation for it from Ottawa. Ottawa, Ottawa I love working with my provincial premiers, but I have to tell you, Ottawa makes it very difficult with the, the way that they continue to, to try to uh, chase our, our industry out of business, talk about just transition, impose punitive taxes on us, as well as emissions caps. I mean, it is, it is very frustrating that we want to be a a uh, contributor to Confederation. But um, unfortunately, we've got a federal government that keeps on trying to stamp out the source of our wealth. And it's created a lot of a, a lot of hurt feelings, I think, in my province. Yeah, you've certainly been in the sights of uh, this government, uh, your province of Alberta, and the province of Saskatchewan. But Alberta and your energy industry um, are so critical to the well-being of this entire country, which a lot of people don't seem to understand or or are or, or not willing to accept. Let's talk about that, about the significance of the energy industry in Alberta and the significance of the Supreme Court decision on Bill C-69, the No More Pipelines Bill. Mr. Gilbo, the environment minister federally, likes to call it an opinion. And I'm trying to point out to him, he doesn't listen to me, but um, I wish he did. Uh, The point is, it wasn't an opinion. It was a decision by the Supreme Court. And that is the process that you go through to be able to get a decision of the Supreme Court. You ask them for their opinion, and they give it to you, and it's supposed to be binding. And I would would hope that the federal government isn't going to behave in a lawless way, that they're going to abide by that decision. One of the things, and I know you have a lot of Ontario listeners, I I know that uh, Unifor always likes to assert that the auto industry is the largest contributor to Canadian GDP. It's not. It's the energy sector, the oil and and natural gas sector. I believe we contribute somewhere in the order of $125 billion in annual GDP, which which doesn't just help us, because in point of fact, the federal government charges higher corporate income taxes than we do, higher personal income taxes than we do. So if all the jobs and profits that are generated by that industry, there's a, a huge amount that goes to Ottawa that then goes to support social programs in the rest of the country. And, and that's a, a good deal for everyone. We're happy because we get royalties. We're, we're able to continue to grow our economy. But when the federal government continues targeting us and keeps telling us that they want us to produce less, 
that they want us to shut in production, that they want us to transition our energy sector workers. It, it, it's creating a, a, an, an equal and opposite reaction. And uh, people in our in Alberta are fighting for their industry. They know that it, that it matters not only to our wealth, but to the country's wealth, and also to, to global energy security. And we, we, we simply are not going to, uh, to turn off lights and shut the industry down, uh, despite what Stephen Guibault may be, may be wanting to do. You know, we talk about the uh, national implications of Alberta's wealth of uh, natural resources and your technology acumen. But if you have a government, if you have a federal government that is uh, being negative about and trying to derail the actual industry that provides billions upon billions of upon billions of dollars to the national treasury, and yes, Alberta is entitled to a significant percentage of that money. But if you have a federal government that is actively discouraging not only the development but the continuance of that industry, where's the investment come, money coming from, Premier? Well, the nice part is that there is a, a significant amount of revenue that is now coming in now that prices have turned around. So companies are able to, to self-fund a lot of their, uh, their, their new investment. There's a lot of merger activity that is, uh, that is going on. And there is an optimism. I think the Americans, uh, there's American analysts who've just looked at our, how undervalued our assets are in Canada. They said, hmm, that would be a pretty good target for us. We've got Trans Mountain Pipeline that is, uh, is going to be completed. We've got the Coastal Gas Link. Uh, the, that is going to be completed. So I think that we're, we're really in a, a period of, of renaissance for this industry. If only our federal government would accept that the industry is being responsible in reducing emissions on a time frame that may be a little bit longer than what they're proposing uh, by 2050, if, uh, but not by 2035 or 2030. And they can work with us. We can actually have it all. We can have energy security. We can have good job creation. We can have stable prices. And we can also uh, create an another huge export boom that we all benefit from. I, I'm not quite sure why they, why they just don't take yes for an answer. This is good for the country. Uh, it's amazing they can't take yes for an answer. They send the Chancellor of Germany home uh, with a pat on the back or a kick in the backside. I'm not sure which one it was. They sent the Prime Minister of Japan back and said, look, there's no business case, or Trudeau said, no business case to be made for natural <laughs> gas development. They didn't come to just have a visit and have a little bit of a, a little poutine at, uh, at, 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 uh, at Parliament. They came with a business prospect, and they were prepared to put a tremendous amount of money, I'm sure, into all of this, and uh, they were sent home. Premier, can I just change horses here in midstream? Yeah. Because one of the, the key issues that is confronts Canadians every single day, I'm sure confronts Albertans each and every day, and that's healthcare in this country. Under tremendous duress, sometimes I just feel it's totally mismanaged, sometimes I think it's only just mismanaged, but what's the approach? Is there is there um, a, a consensus approach on the needs of healthcare that the premiers are bringing forward? Well, I'm really interested because we're we're here in Halifax for the Council of the Federation, and uh, Tim Houston is our host, the Premier of Nova Scotia, and he has an innovation hub, a health innovation hub, that will be making a presentation about all the ways in which they're using technology and robotics and advanced diagnostics in order to be able to get 
better health care and more affordably as well. So I'll have more to say once we once we receive that presentation tomorrow. But what I'm observing is that every single province is having exactly the same problem of attracting qualified uh, staff, of retaining qualified staff in the industry, and of, of, of being able to, to make sure that, that we're not uh, seeing closures of hospitals or uh, making sure everybody has a family doctor. It's, it's remarkable to me that it doesn't matter whether you're in Nova Scotia or Alberta, British Columbia. We're all, we're all facing the same challenges. And so I hope that with, with all of the brains around the table, thinking about solutions and seeing what everybody else is trying, that, we'll, that we will be able to come up with those solutions. I won't keep you too much longer. There's a couple more questions I have for you. And uh, we're going to be speaking with the former Canadian ambassador to Israel, uh, Vivian Berkovich, in the next hour. And, and we're going to be speaking with the ambassador about an issue that is hugely important and has to be dealt with, and that is this virulent anti-Semitism, which is seen on the streets of this country, where people are openly siding with Hamas murderers of children, rapists, killers, kidnappers, and university professors, one, in, one anyway, I, I heard her speak in British Columbia, saluting the kidnappers, the murderers, the rapists of Hamas. And this anti-Semitism in this country has multi-generational Jewish-Canadian families terrified and thinking of, speaking about, leaving Canada, tearing up their roots, and moving to Israel. Would you just address the issue of anti-Semitism in Canada? Well, it's heartbreaking. I've got I've got Jewish staff members, and I can tell you we were all watching in horror as we saw the uh, images of the Hamas terrorist attack. I mean, Hamas is a terrorist organization, and the actions of that day are absolutely indefensible. I'm appalled that that uh, anybody would be on the streets uh, chanting in support of Hamas. They're they need to be eradicated, um, and and until. And until they are, Israel isn't safe. And so that's that's the thing that I find very sad is that there there seems to be, um, and I, I never expected to see it in Canada. I never expected to see it at our universities or in North America at all. Such open anti-Semitism, um, it, I think, is really heartbreaking. And I hope that we're able to find a way in Canada to avoid those kinds of, of conflicts on our streets here. I mean, we, we have to make sure that uh, that we continue to have supportive communities. And, and I, I hope that it doesn't escalate the way I've seen elsewhere. Mm -hmm. We do have criminal law for anybody who openly advocates for a de designated terrorist organization, and that needs to be engaged as well. Premier, final question for you. Your party just had its annual general meeting. What's the takeaway? You were, you were extremely well-received. Well, I think we had close to 4,000 delegates there, which may make it the largest conservative AGM in political history in our country. People are very excited. I'm so glad to see it because there was a, a period of time where there was a lot of apathy, where I think it took a lot to get people to, to, to show up and be involved. Well, there isn't apathy in our province anymore. And I hope that that sends a message across the country that conservatism is alive and well. The heart of conservatism uh, remains in Alberta. And we, want, we are more than happy to export that too. We would love to see uh, more conservative ideas and more conservative uh, representatives elected to office. I think we have better ideas, and we're going to be doing some innovative things. I, I hope people take note, and, uh, and maybe we'll be able to, to teach some of the other provinces, maybe even the federal government, a thing or two. Well, congratulations. We had a segment earlier on where we talked about the federal governance duopoly, the Liberals and the, and the New Democrats, the Trudeau-Singh coalition. 
And uh, let me put it to you this way. When I took phone calls, the support for the duopoly, non-existent, zero. Abs- that's two days in a row. Zero. Nobody. With, with good reason. You know what? You know, somebody uh, recently analyzed this for me. Um, every month, a certain percentage of people leave their existing fixed rate mortgage and have to go out into the market and do a new fixed rate mortgage. And they're seeing a doubling of their costs. And then they're looking around saying, why did this happen? And it's pretty clear it's happened because of the policies of the, the Liberals and, and the NDP that caused inflation, which is now causing interest rates to rise. It's increased the cost of everything. And then on top of that, you've got the carbon tax, which is making everything from groceries to everything else uh, unaffordable. So uh, I think that as that reality continues to set in, more and more people realize that as they get entrenched and they refuse to switch gears on either of those issues, that it's, it's just going to drive more and more voters away from them. And that's that's what they're seeing. It's a, consequence of their bad policies. Anti-Semitism in Canada. We've seen it on the streets. We've heard it. All of us. And it's incumbent on all of us to not accept this. Now, the Premier mentioned campuses, university campuses. There's a university professor in British Columbia, Natalie Knight, who spoke at a pro-Hamas rally in Vancouver. Her quote that is making the rounds is, this is how she described the Hamas terrorism and barbarism on October the 7th. Quote, the amazing, brilliant offensive waged on October 7th. Professor Natalie Knight. Ambassador Vivian Berkovich joins me, Canada's former ambassador to Israel. Her website is stateoftelaviv.com, stateoftelaviv.com. Ambassador, when you hear that, when you know that a a university professor gets up on a pro-Hamas rally, just that alone is deeply disturbing. What's your your reaction? Um, Horrified. Horror. And uh, what's even more horrifying is that Professor Natalie Knight seems to have a lot of company in Canada, a lot of support. And what's even more horrifying than that is that law enforcement and federal or federal government in particular, but also provincial governments, seem okay with it. Like, we're just sort of sitting here watching this madness unfurl around us. It's explicit criminal code hate speech. It's incitement to hate. There has been, um, you know, there have been many examples of Jewish people being physically assaulted, threatened online and in person. Jewish businesses have been vandalized and targeted with riots and demonstrations. And it just seems to be nobody really seems to think this is a problem. The whole thing is just so beyond surreal. I don't know how else to put it. Um, I was on... uh... My my colleague Greg Brady's show on AM640 in Toronto mm. a week and a half ago. 
And I received an email, and I'm not going to identify the, uh, the person who wrote it other than say her first name is Nancy. And she wrote, in part, and Brian Pacifume of the National Post was with us. And mm. she wrote, uh, I found your conversation with Brian Pacifume to be very interesting. I agree with his thinking that we are going to have a night of the broken glass here in Canada. I don't understand why all levels of government and the mainstream media are avoiding this topic. I'm not religious at all. However, my father was Jewish, and that is very much a part of my ethnicity. Then she mentions the city that she lives in. I'm not going to mention it because I don't want in any way to connect her or have somebody identify who she might be. But she says, she writes, uh, unless I know someone fairly well, um, I don't mention it, that she's Jewish. I haven't worn a Star of David in over 25 years because I don't trust people. The Jew hate mm -hmm. has been for around for many years. We've allowed it to fester, and I believe we're going to pay for it. Uh, people need to understand that most of what's going on in Israel isn't about Israel, but about Jew hate. It is here, mm -hmm. and it is ugly. Yours, Nancy. Mm -hmm. I could probably get I could probably get a thousand emails like that. No. Um, probably tens of thousands uh, today. And, you know, I have to say that, of course, Jewish people, Jewish Canadians, we feel it very acutely because uh, we are targeted. I mean, even if we just go out for, you know, an innocent walk or go into a store, it would shock you how frequently um, we're asked if we're Jewish. I never used to be asked if I'm Jewish. Um, how we make a point of not speaking about certain things in public, walking down the street, um, because we're afraid. <laughs> and we're afraid for good reason. Um, I mean, the notion that Canada's a great country, and I've lived here most of my life and grew up here, uh, but the notion that Canada was not anti-Semitic at all is um, just not true. But what we are seeing now is a very different kind of mutation. And um, a lot of it has been imported. A lot of it is Muslim extremism. Um, and then, you know, it kind of converges with this very toxic, um, you know, woke intersectional culture that's just taken root everywhere, including in academia. And when you were watching it, we're watching it happen. Social media and is the, the, gasoline poured on the fire and it's just going crazy. Um, one of the things that's very different now from the anti-Semitism that I grew up with is the, um, the belief and the open expression um, of the fact that Israel is a criminal genocidal state that must be annihilated. I mean, these are really, really extreme comments. We don't tolerate that kind of discussion about any other country in the world, and there are a lot that I suggest are much more deserving. Um, and we know that when these people talk about Israel and annihilating Israel, they are talking about Jews. And we know that because we see it in our streets today. They're targeting Jewish schools. They're targeting Jewish people. They're targeting Jewish institutions. They're targeting Jewish homes. Um, they're not targeting Israel. They're targeting Jews. And to have our authorities just kind of stand around and really do nothing um, is incredible. Like nothing. 
I was just reading, you know, half hour or so ago, um, the Toronto police put out a tweet and said, gee, you know, it was kind of kind of intense yesterday, but, you know, it was pretty peaceful overall and no arrests were made. And and I responded to them like, what are you talking about? It wasn't peaceful. Bay Street was full of, of I don't know how many and we're in the crowd, tens of thousands, maybe chanting for the destruction of Israel. They went on a, you know, kind of rampage uh, to several branches of Aroma, the coffee shop, because it's Israeli and Jewish owned. They've targeted Lanver, another uh, Jewish owned shop. There are others I know that uh, haven't made the news yet that are on their list. They vandalized them. They threatened patrons. I mean, this is not lawful conduct. Calling for the destruction and annihilation of Jews and Israel is hate speech. It's incitement to hatred under the criminal code. And nobody is doing anything. Sure. And then there are other examples in other cities. There's, an, there's another example from Montreal yesterday. I mean, I'm sure you've seen all the same stuff that I have. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't seem to bother people. And all, something else that's very disturbing is we have, I think, close to 2 million Muslim Canadians. Not how many are citizens, but there's a Muslim population in Canada of close to 2 million, is my understanding. Maybe I missed it, but I have not heard a single condemnation of this conduct from a single uh, Muslim spiritual leader, community organization, politician, nothing. Why? Our prime minister is effectively silent. Silent. And, you know, both he and anyone in his caucus who dares to speak out, I can only imagine the strictures there under these days, you know, they put out these innocuous comments, uh, you know, most recent of the prime ministers, and I'm going to read it because there were, you know, riots yesterday, or not riots, demonstrations on Parliament Hill, again, calling for the annihilation of Israel and, you know, basic murder of Jews. And, and uh, you know, he just goes, all he needs is a swastika flag, and then he just goes apoplectic. So he tweets this hours later. When we see or hear hateful language and imagery, we must condemn it. The display of a swastika by an individual on Parliament Hill is unacceptable. Canadians have the right to assemble peacefully, but we cannot tolerate anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, or hate of any kind. Why is he talking about Islamophobia when Canadian streets are full of virulent calls for the destruction of Israel and attacks on Jews and attacks on Jewish-owned businesses. Yeah, I saw that tweet. I saw that. Right? Yeah. What am I missing here? You know, I went and looked at his his Twitter feed yesterday. Mm. I went back a number of days just to see if there was something there where he actually Mm. said something of significance about the Mm. anti-Semitism, the fear that is being infused into Jewish Canadians. Jewish Canadian mm-hmm. families, multi-generational families. I saw nothing. I saw absolutely nothing. There's a lot of I, me, I, me, I, me, I did this, I'm doing that, me, 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 me. 
but but I saw nothing for. I went back about four or five days. He did he did uh, tweet about um, uh, in 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 an abstract way, but it wasn't. I sat down and I'm decided and I'm determined that we will protect the Jewish community in this country and use the law to do it, like they did in New York State. Cornell, here's a here's a here's a headline from Forbes. Uh, com business section. Cornell student arrested over posts threatening Jewish students on campus. They arrested a 21-year-old uh, student because he made threats online against Jewish students, and he's now facing criminal charges, serious criminal right. charges. He could end up in prison, and I doubt he's going to have much of a career going forward. That's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we're starting to see a lot of real activism from alumni in the U.S., uh, I don't know if you noticed, but Bill Ackman, uh, you know, huge um, hedge fund um, businessman based in New York, Harvard alum, uh, he just put out a scathing, very long letter on Twitter today addressed to the president of Harvard. Um, in, in And law firms in the States have become very active, basically saying, all of you law schools that tolerate this kind of, you know, conduct, we're not hiring. We're not yeah. just not hiring from you. I saw that. But we don't see the same. We don't see the same kind of, um, uh, you know, power and confidence here. And there are many reasons for that. There are many differences between the Canadian and American Jewish communities. But I want to pick up on there are a couple of other things that are really important to bear in mind. Uh, I'm quite certain that from the very beginning, our prime minister has not once referred to the Hamas savagery as war crimes. Um, although he just loves to remind Israel constantly of their obligation, you know, not to um, commit war crimes. And um, he apparently did so again yesterday in a readout he, his office provided of a conversation with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, we support your right to defend yourself, but remember, Justin Trudeau wagging his finger, no war crimes. I mean, I'm not going to get into the details of what's happened and how it's happened and as it's happened, but what I did tweet back to him was, Prime Minister, what you should have been doing from day one was calling Hamas out for savagery and war crimes, working with the international community to evacuate citizens from the north, as Israel has been trying to do for three weeks. And, you know, when you talk, and he hasn't done any of that, and, you know, now his big thing is he's going to be the big hero and he's championing humanitarian causes. Although he can't even keep his words straight because half the time he, he's, I mean, he, meant he wants ceasefire, right? But he realizes now, okay, that's not cool. He can't say that because ceasefire basically means, you know, Israel surrenders. But, you know, and he says, oh, and I also addressed humanitarian pauses with Netanyahu. Right. You know, it's all over the global press that uh, about 50% of the people leaving or trying to leave the Gaza Strip in these humanitarian convoys, are wounded Hamas fighters. They're known, and Egypt's not letting them in. I mean, if we're going to be doing humanitarian convoys, let's at least make sure they're humanitarian. Let's also not let in um, fuel and weapons, which Hamas has tried to smuggle in the other way. So he has this very bizarre understanding of what's actually going on. He has not once, again, unless I've missed it, he has not, which I think is highly unlikely, he has, he's quick to upbraid Israel. He has not once 
upbraided Hamas in nearly the same language. Um, he does not refer to them as a terrorist organization, even though they are listed as a terrorist organization. The other day we had um, the supreme leader of Iran just, you know, rapturous, talking about the IRGC, their military, their elite military arm, and how triumphant they were and helping Hamas and working with Hamas. And isn't this great? I mean, Justin Trudeau's government has refused to list the IRGC. They did it again last week as a terrorist. Uh, Ambassador, Ambassador, I'm sorry to do this, but we always run up against a a finite amount of time that we have for any segment, and, and we've done it. I thank you for coming on the program, uh, Ambassador Berkovich. Uh, stateoftelaviv.com is your website, stateoftelaviv.com. Uh, photo essays and, uh, and, and uh, commentaries there, stateoftelaviv.com. We'll talk again, Ambassador. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I have um, said that I am seeking counsel on this matter of what I can and cannot say. I understand fully that Canadians want to know the truth and want transparency. Privilege and confidentiality are not mine to waive, and I hope that I have the opportunity to speak my truth. The parliamentary uh, reality was that the Prime Minister's office was leaning heavily on Jody Wilson-Raybould to persuade Canada's prosecutorial service, the federal one, not to engage, not to engage, not to engage in pursuing a criminal charge against Quebec's SNC-Levelin, a company that has faced massive fines for their, shall we say, ethically questionable behavior internationally. And when Mr. Trudeau was was confronted with that in front of national television cameras, you think I'm picking on on him, don't you? I'm not. I'm just telling you what happened. You, You remember, he was confronted in front of national television cameras, and he was asked by a reporter, there's a story in the Globe and Mail today, I'm paraphrasing, of course, that indicates that your office, the prime minister's office, has been putting pressure on the solicitor general to persuade Canada's prosecutorial service not to pursue criminal charges against SNC-Lavalin. Now, Trudeau gave a wishy-washy answer, but then he said, the report is false. Well, we know that it certainly wasn't false. And Jody Wilson-Raybould wanted to share, there were the, the, the parliamentary committee hearings, I'm sure you remember those, that the Liberals shut down time and again with five to four votes, because they had the votes. Um, Jody Wilson-Raybould, who wanted to share what happened with Canadians, was ordered not to because of cabinet confidentiality. And we, we've spoken to uh, Mr. Wilson-Raybould on this program more than once. So guess what, boys and girls? (laughs) What what goes around comes around, and it's come around again, and that is the SNC-Lavalin story has raised its head again. And thankfully, 
We have Duff Conacher and Democracy Watch looking out for us. And according to Democracy Watch, the RCMP, well, yeah, they were going to investigate what happened with SNC-Levelin. The RCMP non-investigation of the SNC-Levelin scandal is continuing. Um, Liberal, NDP, and BQ committee members over the last few days shut down the Parliamentary Ethics Committee hearing on, on October 23rd, at which the RCMP commissioner was to testify. Later, though, Conservative Member of Parliament Michael Barrett and Bloc Québécois MP René Villemur proposed motions to call the commissioner and others to testify, and the Bloc MP's motion was approved. So, if you feel like your your brain is caught in molasses, I do too. Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, joins us. Duff, this has been going on for years. Yes, years. Years. We're, this is five years since the pressure was put on the Attorney General, former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould. And uh, the RCMP is still hiding 2,200-plus pages of investigation records and still escaping accountability. And part of the reason for that is they received an initial assessment report in uh, March of 2021, so two and a half years ago, and they sat on it for almost two years until they decided whether to uh, go ahead with a full investigation, let alone prosecution, and they decided to not go ahead with a, a full investigation. So part of the reason this is still dragging on is for almost two years, the top brass of the RCMP just sat on it clearly hoping that delay would just make it go away and, and people would forget and move on. And, but of course you can't move on when there's alleged criminal wrongdoing. There has to be full public accountability always. So the RCMP, if I'm understanding you correctly, was in the process of not disclosing information the public should have based on that case we were so involved with to clear the decks as far as trouble is concerned for the government. Yeah? Yes. And when you look at the assessment that they did, they believed everything that Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, finance, former Finance Minister Bill Morneau, and, and other cabinet officials said, cast it in a favorable light, cast pretty much everything that, that former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould said in a negative light, decided not to even try to get the records that cabinet was refusing to give them so they could see what actually went on and, and what communications there were between the prime minister and others in terms of putting pressure on the attorney general to stop this prosecution of snc Lavala. And, uh, of course, we're just not saying anything to the media, not announcing anything, just trying to lay low and hope that Everyone would move on and it would go away. And that's why Democracy Watch is still chasing after it. You can't have the RCMP investigate the prime minister and other cabinet officials for alleged criminal wrongdoing and then have the RCMP never say anything about it again and just deal with it all behind closed doors in secret, rolling over like a lapdog and not really doing a full investigation. So now they're going to now they're going to have to appear before House Ethics Committee, the RCMP commissioner, some other uh, officials, and and answer the questions. Well, how did this happen? Why did this happen? 
Why did you sit on it for two years? Why did you never even do a full investigation, never try to get secret cabinet records? And hopefully that will get some answers, uh, but we still need a full public inquiry into this. It's so smelly. Yeah, I tweeted earlier, if you were to lift up the edge of the rug on this scandal involving now the RCMP, the smell would be awful. But, you know, given the fact, and it is fact, that quite recently in the Mass Casualty Commission hearings in Nova Scotia over the 22 murders in 2018, it was, I think, proven to the satisfaction of the majority of Canadians that there was indeed a cozy relationship between the former RCMP commissioner and the then Public Safety Minister, Bill Blair, and the Prime Minister. So you'd think the RCMP would have a long enough memory to say, hey, we just, we can't do this because Canadians are already questioning us as far as our, either our investigative skills are concerned or our honesty is concerned, but, but they go right ahead. And for, unfortunately, and I don't know why, but the House Ethics Committee is not calling former Commissioner Brendan Lucky to testify. She was the one who was in charge when the delay happened for almost two years, when all the other decisions were made to roll over and not even do a full investigation. Uh, they're calling the current commissioner and they're calling the, the lead investigator, uh, a staff sergeant in the RCMP, but not her. But the staff sergeant's report went up to national headquarters in March of 2021, when Brendan DeLucky was the commissioner, and then the headquarters sat on it for almost two years without making any decision about what to do. So I, I hope, and the, com the committee is open to this. They're, they're going to hold two days of hearing, six witnesses, uh, the ethics commissioner, the former clerk, clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Wernick, uh, and the, the two people from the RCMP, and then have said, if there are unanswered questions after that, uh, certainly the Conservative and Bloc MPs will bring another motion to continue the hearings. Uh, so I, I think there will be unanswered questions. How is the current commissioner, although he was the deputy commissioner before, so he was still at the top level. But if he leaves stuff un unanswered, I hope they will call the former commissioner, Brenda Lucky. She's the real one who should be held accountable for this. She was, she was the commissioner at the time it all happened. So you're one of the most politically savvy people in this country. And you follow the, the machinations of government and hold them accountable at Democracy Watch as much as you possibly can. You launch court cases with the federal court. You represent the interests of Canadians in an objective manner. You want the government to be responsive and responsible to the people. So your best guess, your deductive reasoning here, Duff, what the hell is going on? This is, I mean, historically, this is the Canadian way. If you're talking about top cabinet ministers, a prime minister, a premier of a province, the police will roll over and will do everything they can to essentially cover up the wrongdoing instead of proceeding with, uh, and do it all behind closed doors, instead of dealing with it as it should be dealt with, which is that you go into open court and you let a judge decide based on all the evidence whether uh, the line has been crossed, especially when you have an unprecedented case like this. I mean, it's probable that cabinet and prime ministers in the past have pressured attorney generals to drop 
prosecutions, but it's never been done publicly with uh, the attorney general coming out and saying, I was pressured. So this is an unprecedented court case and, and situation. So the prosecutors, the RCMP, they can't look and say, oh, well, there are 10 cases in the past. And in every case, the prime minister and other cabinet officials were let off by the courts for this pressure because the courts have ruled that that kind of pressure is legal. So if you can't point to that, then why are you prejudging behind closed doors that you could never win a prosecution? Not even, I mean, the RCMP didn't even do a full investigation. But if you got to the decision of, well, we, we can't quite tell whether we'll win the case or not, then you let the courts decide. You that's what decide the courts are for. Doors. Yeah, uh, that's what they're for. In an open public court with a public record of all the evidence, instead of trying to bury the evidence, as I, as I mentioned, we're still waiting for more than 2,200 pages of uh, records to come out from the RCMP. And, and Duff, Mario Dion, who was Justin Trudeau's personally appointed ethics commissioner, parliamentary ethics commissioner, conflict of interest act uh, supervisor, is what I like to call him. He was appointed by Justin Trudeau without the participation of the opposition parties, which parliamentary law requires. That very same appointed by Trudeau, uh, ethics commissioner, found Trudeau guilty of an ethics violation, guilty of of contravening the Conflict of Interest Act by, in fact, pressuring Jody Wilson-Raybould, which Trudeau told the national, <laughs> all of the people of Canada on the first morning when he was questioned about that. No, the Globe and Mail report is false. It wasn't false. Dion found him guilty. Yes, that's right. And that was incredible that Dion did that, given that he was handpicked behind closed doors also by Trudeau. But he did it. He did the right thing. Uh, and he complained about not having access to all of the records because the Trudeau cabinet refused to give him access. But it was enough evidence there for him to find him guilty of this unethical act. And the RCMP started out with the proper standard for uh, alleged obstruction of justice in terms of looking at it. Because the, the provision in the criminal code says you cannot obstruct in any manner a judicial proceeding or a prosecution. And he, the RCMP started out with that standard, but as they did their assessment, they switched and said, oh, we have to prove that they did it for a corrupt intent. Well, that's not the actual standard that's used in these cases. But even if it is, well, the ethics commissioner had found that what Trudeau did was unethical. So unethical equals corrupt intent. So they had that evidence already. They had the conclusion from the ethics commissioner. As I said, it smells so bad in so many ways Yeah. You know, that, that hopefully these hearings will get some answers, but I think still a full public inquiry uh, or the House committee themselves. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with the public all inquiry. The records and, well, we'll see what comes out of this hearing. Uh, the opposition parties united and pressed for a full public inquiry into the foreign interference mm -hmm. uh, issue, and they could do the same again. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, mean, I would fully support that. I'm just saying that <laughs> I have my doubts. I've become quite doubtful about this. Now, so tell us, it's, please. It's hard. Yeah. It's definitely hard. The, so, so, the, cabinet, the cabinet gets to choose whether an inquiry happens. But if all the opposition parties unite and put as much pressure on the government 
to call a public inquiry into this as they did on foreign interference, the Liberals would be hard-pressed not to do it because the more they resisted, just like in foreign interference, the more it would look like a cover-up and damage them politically. Right, already so we'll, looks we'll like, it, it already looks like a cover-up. Uh, Duff, what happened on that October 23rd uh, meeting, that Parliamentary Ethics Committee meeting? How, how did how did, how did the, the RCMP commissioner and the sergeant and others not get called and then two MPs uh, bring forward motions, Bloc Quebecois and Conservative MPs, and all of a sudden there's going to be a, a, a hearing with, with the commissioner and, and the rest of them. How did that happen? Well, the... Uh, chairs of committees have a prerogative where they can uh, schedule people to come and give them briefings. And so that's what the Conservative chair did. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he re- requested that the RCMP commissioner and the staff sergeant, who was the lead investigator, come and give uh, a briefing on and answer some of these questions that are unanswered. Mm-hmm. And he gave the opposition party members the required 48 hours notice. They learned on Friday the meeting was going to happen on Monday. So they actually had over the 72 hours notice. Uh, But they all united. Um, Only the Conservatives voted to continue the meeting. The Liberals voted, uh, brought forward a motion to adjourn the meeting as soon as it started. It's probably the shortest shortest committee meeting in the history of Parliament. It only (laughs) lasted three and a half minutes. And uh, the Bloc and NDP didn't like the way it had happened as well and lined up with them. But to his credit, the Bloc MP then came back uh, at the next meeting and said, I'm introducing a motion to have, I want this to happen. I didn't vote against it on Monday because I I don't want to question the RCMP commissioner, uh, but I want it to be done with all of us voting for it. And it took about an hour and they reached a compromise and it was unanimously passed. Even the Liberals voted in favor that time. So now it's going ahead with two days of hearings. Uh, not enough, but a start to getting to the bottom of this very, very scandalous and smelly affair. Well, congratulations to Democracy Watch for everything you do. And thank you for everything you do for Canadians. Sometimes Canadians aren't really aware enough about Democracy Watch. Remind us what the website is. I'll keep you updated. Uh, the hearing should occur sometime in the next few weeks. So okay. I'll let you know when it's happening. And it's democracywatch.ca? Yes. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you can support Democracy Watch, because what they do is expensive, if you can support them with a few bucks here and there, or a regular contribution, that will be very much appreciated by Mr. Conagher and his investigators. Duff, thank you for joining us always. Thanks so much. Thank you, Roy. Take care. The Prime Minister doesn't want to debate with the, with the Premiers. Because you and I, over yesterday and today, we've been listening to what happened the first time he tried to sell the carbon tax to the premiers. And he was babbling on about, uh, well, we'll collect the tax, but, uh, but, but, but it's going to go back to you. We'll, we'll collect the tax from your province, and it's going to go back to you, and you can decide if you're going to give your farmers a bonus. We'll take the tax from the farmers, and we'll give it back to you and give it back to them. And the incredible Brad Wall who was then the uh, premier of uh, Saskatchewan, as you know, came up with that wonderful line. So, so you want, <laughs> so, so, so you're, you're going to collect, this is like a comedy routine. So you're going to collect the, um, the tax from the farmers of Saskatchewan, right? And, 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 and you're going to give it back to me so I can give it back to the farmers. 
So what's the point? That's a, that's a keeper. Tom Korsky's a keeper. Executive editor of Black Locks Reporter at Minding Ottawa on uh, Twitter slash X slash Elon Musk's um, property. Thomas, so classic, wasn't it, with, with Trudeau and Brad Wall? It was just, I'm so glad I kept that. I mean, it's 57 seconds we played. We played it yesterday. We played it today. It's a classic, isn't it? How are you? I'm well, thank you, Roy. It, well, it was on, on the surface. It was the world's most complicated gasoline tax, essentially. You know, the worst part is now with the uh, Atlantic waiver, where they have 24 liberal seats. This is now being played. They've had they've, three or four times they've had to come up with other different slogans to sell this, when it was obviously about the 24 liberal seats. And now it's being portrayed as, a, as an anti-poverty program. This is the sin, of one of the many sins of the carbon tax, my two cents, Roy. It's not income tested. So uh, there's a lot of poor people who, who heat their homes with natural gas. Tough luck, Charlie. This is all about the, the politics, but even on the rebates. On the first day of the carbon tax when they passed the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act in 2018, when it went through Parliament, the famous rebates that you just described, the world's most complicated fuel tax, the rebate, is not income tested. You get the exact same rebate, whether you're a single mom driving to your job 70 kilometers a week at Walmart, or whether you winter in Florida. And someone was asked in committee from the Department of Finance, the big machine, What's progressive about that? And you know what their answer was? Well, rich people tend to burn more fuel, so they won't get the full benefit. Don't you see? They won't get the full benefit of the rebates. Are you kidding me? That's how berserk this scheme became. And you have this wonderful quote from uh, I vacation with the prime minister on the Aga Khan's private island in the Bahamas, Seamus O'Regan. Um <laughs> A cabinet faces a commons vote Monday, as it's on at Minding Ottawa, Black Lux reporter. Cabinet faces a commons vote Monday on a motion to repeal the 12 cents per cubic meter tax for the majority of Canadian homeowners who heat with natural gas. So Regan says, everyday folks are just having trouble making things meet and looking for someone to blame. They're just, they're just looking for someone to blame. How was that? How was that vacation on the Agar Khan's <laughs> private island? <laughs> they just looking. By the way, that vote is going to be about three thirty p.m. Eastern time in the House of Commons. Only the Bloc Quebecois can save cabinet. The the vote is non-binding. Yeah, it's just really embarrassing. It is when you're when you're co-pilot uh, Jagmeet Singh, co-pilot to uh, Justin Trudeau. Says, uh, no, 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 I can't afford to go along with you on this. And the duopoly starts to disintegrate. And I think that's what's, that's what's happening. Mr. Singh is looking for the exit. I would suggest to him, just walk down the aisle or walk down the hall. And when you see a door with a box around the top, uh, uh, above the door, look for the letters E-X-I-T and head out. It's funny, though, Roy, you know that there's, we often say that in Parliament, there's no sudden death over time. It's an accumulation of pluses or minuses. There are so many minuses that are now accumulating, and it's, it, it, it becomes like a snowfall. It's just like mm -hmm. an avalanche, really. Yeah. And one day, the cabinet is doing exactly what they did four years ago or six years ago, and it was magic. Everyone in Ottawa loved it. 
And they're trying to do the same routine now. And it's black death and it's not working for them. I agree with you. I think there will be an election in 2024, not in 2025, according to the master plan. And it's going to come up very, very fast. There are so many minuses now. It's, it's spectacular. So let's talk about, or have you explained to us the story behind uh, the headline, Contractor Secretly Recorded, a Black Locks reporter. This is bad, Roy. The company is called JC Strategies. It's a two-man shop. They run out of a home office in a little town outside of Ottawa called Woodlawn, Ontario. So far, so good. I just described a million small businesses in Canada. No, wait, there's more. They got a $9 million payment for the famous ArriveCan app. And in fact, they've had tens of millions of dollars in contracts, this little two-man shop, for work with the Canada Border Services Agency. Well, you would say, this is incredible. This is a company I've never heard of. They don't have any employees except the two partners. And they're in the money. (laughs) We're talking millionaires working out of their basement. That's incredible. Forget Bill Gates. What's the magic? A subcontractor tape recorded one of the principles of GC Strategies on the phone in which he boasted that he had the ear of the president of the Canada Border Services Agency that he had pulling this town. What's the takeaway, Roy? You know they borrowed and spent half a trillion dollars. How many stories have we looked into on government contracting? We've always said, if you have the secret handshake, you get the deal. And if you don't, you can line up in the snow and you can fill out all the forms and triplicates you want. This is a compelling case because it's the first time that someone got it in a recording and gave it to a parliamentary committee, government operations committee. Keep an eye on this one. It's a bad one. Well, do for sure. And let's go back to the uh, duopoly of the Liberals and the Democrats, Mr. Singh and Mr. Trudeau. Well, uh, one of Mr. Trudeau's ministers, the health minister, Mark Holland, probably disappointed Mr. Singh <laughs> a little bit on the pharmacare file. Off over to you, Tom. Well, they made a deal, a famous deal. You recall it well in oh, 2022. I do. I do. And they actually put it on paper and they signed it. It was like a contract. And the supply and confidence contract said that in exchange for keeping cabinet in power till 2025, June 2025, this was the deal. Cabinet had to pass certain bills. Well, one of the bills they had to pass was Pharmacare by the end of 2023. Well, I'm looking at a calendar now. House calendar, they have 24 days left. They haven't even introduced a Pharmacare bill. Here was the Minister of Health. God bless him. Mark Holland, <laughs> pretending to have amnesia and the Commons Health Committee, <laughs> Pharmacare. Who said anything about Pharmacare? I never committed to passing a Pharmacare bill. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> it was like the first time we heard it. So now oh, it's Fisher cut bait for New Democrats. They're not getting their bill by the end of the year. There's, that's now a mathematical impossibility. It's just uh, it's staggering. It's, it's staggering. It's like, it's like a terrible sitcom. It's a kind of sitcom that gets signed and disappears after six episodes. 
So you're saying this is like cynical horse trading that denigrates the reputation of federal politicians? Are you implying that? <laughs> well, I might have used some it's sort looking of looking like that. I might have used some sort of equine anatomy analogy, but <laughs> may not have been may not have been horse trading that I would have. I, 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 I'm picking up what you're putting down. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, let's let's talk about something that's very serious. Not that this isn't serious. It's just being managed by clowns. Um, the very serious aspect is the security of this country. And uh, you show, again, on Black Fox Reporter, Brian Mulroney, Prime Minister, in the 80s and until 1992. Three, that's right. He, yeah, he, did he hand over to Kim Campbell in 92 or 93? 93, yeah, 93. for uh, three months, yeah. Yeah, I had a, uh, just before he did that, I had a one-on-one -on -one exclusive interview with Brian Mulrooney. I had asked uh, for, for uh, an interview, and we had done exactly what he was doing. He's running around the country and trying to find out how Canadians felt about uh, I can't even remember the Charlottetown Accord. I think maybe, maybe. Anyway, so we talked to Canadians as well. I hooked up a network of radio stations from Vancouver to St. John's, New Newfoundland, and we asked listeners, and, and we had um, the chairman of the uh, of the of the commission, Mr. Spicer, in the studio with us. So I I, I sent a letter, or I, I don't know if we had emails then. Might have been a fax. Saying this is what we're doing. We're essentially doing what um, what the prime minister wants to be done. We're doing it. Could we have an interview with Mr. Mulroney? Oh, no. No. Uh, when we're next in town, we'll talk to you. You know that line. So, so I, 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 read, I read the reply on the air, and our listeners had been so engaged, and they became furious. It just so happened the very next day, I had Jerry Weiner coming into the studio, who was a pharmacist and a federal minister and a really nice guy. And I held on to this missive from the Prime Minister's office and Mr. Weiner sat down with me in this very studio that I'm sitting in now. And I said, uh, Jerry, how do you think the Prime Minister would react if he knew that a radio station program had done what we did? And I explained it. He said, oh, Mr. Mulrooney would be thrilled. He would be so happy. And I handed him the letter on the air and I said, read this. And he said, oh, I'm shocked. I said, so can I count on you taking this back to the prime minister personally? Next day, Tom, I get a call from the prime minister's press secretary. You win. And so I had a one-hour uh, exclusive interview with him at Lotel in Toronto where they had the conservative, progressive conservative party convention. And after he had preached to the to the choir and had them all pumped up. I had to go to the 18th floor and meet with him. There was zero security. When I walked into the hotel, before all of this, there were cops everywhere, dogs, people talking into their sleeves. After that, nothing. So I, I walked down the hall. Some guy popped his head out of the door, said, are you Roy Green? Yep. Okay, Prime Minister's down in room, whatever it was, 1806, let's say. So I went in there, and we're talking. And I threw him some softballs. And then I said, you know what, Mr. Prime Minister... Canadians are really fed up with the fact, and I hear this from uh, my callers, that at the constituency level, um, it doesn't matter what we want. Our constituency member of parliament takes our desires, wishes, expectations to Ottawa, turns them over to you, and you make the decision. It doesn't matter what they think, what the constituents think. And Mr. Mulrooney said, I'm tired of the bitchers and complainers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I looked at him. 
<laughs> and he looked at me, and I said to myself, you don't need to go on with this interview, Roy. You've got the gold. The charm did run out in the end. <laughs> oh, God. And that remark went across the country, and yeah. Donato, who did political cartoons for the Toronto Sun, did a cartoon of a taxpayer with his head in the toilet and patched clothing, and Mulrooney with his boot on his backside, shoving him into the toilet, saying, stop bitching. Well, that's where we are now. I, I forget now what we were talking. Oh, yeah, Mulrooney. <laughs> Mulrooney and your story, the serious story about Mulrooney secretly warning cabinet members to treat their chauffeurs as spies and gossips. Tell us, please. It's funny. Yeah, no, we, we've been trying to get, uh, believe it or not, Mulrooney cabinet minutes through access to information for years. Why this would be a secret. Half the cabinet members have left this mortal coil. Why this would still be in that? Anyway, they're finally starting to declassify them. We see this was a, a pretty hot 1987 cabinet session where Mulroney gave the riot act to Jerry Weiner and his other ministers about who were the rats and the spies in Ottawa. And uh, number one on his list was chauffeurs. They were the worst, second only to political aides. He said, you can't trust these guys. Political aides, chiefs of staff, they're a bunch of blabbermouths. They'll just get you indicted, he said. I I'm quoting accurately. This is from Cabinet Minutes. And chauffeurs, they'll, they'll steal records, and they're sitting in the car while you're in the back seat uh, shooting your mouth off, and they're taking <laughs> down everything mentally. It's all metal notes. You remember Pat Carney, former trade minister. Oh, yes. They had fired. This was not known at the time. They fired her chauffeur for being a spy and found documents, cabinet records, in his possession. Big scandal. Only now do we find out. But we always say in the newsroom, Roy, everything comes out eventually. Yes, it does. Like... The eight million plus dollars, eight million thirty nine thousand eight hundred fifty three dollars, to be precise, buried in the budget. Tom, what's that about? Why is this a big deal? This is the famous people might have heard about the barn. This is they call it the barn. I'm using air quotes. It's a it's basically a warehouse, little shed uh, for storage at Rideau Hall. Cost eight million dollars. Solar powered. And apparently it has an elevator, but no one knows where it goes because it's only a one-story building. What's up with that? That's not the scandal, believe it or not. The Commons Public Accounts Committee discovers this $8 million was never scrutinized by the Treasury Board or anybody. It was buried in the accounts of a crown corporation called the National Capital Commission, which has a $190 million budget. And MPs, you could see the lights come on and their hair turn on fire as they discovered that that's how budgeting now works in Ottawa, where you can have federal managers bury $8 million solar-powered warehouses in the accounts, and no one even looks at it. Roy, this is why we don't balance a budget. This is why debt servicing charges went up 42% last year, according to public accounts. They don't even know what they're voting on anymore. It's mindless. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 